The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. dive into the text that I chose today from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, some of you know that Pastor Jared and I, we like to run marathons. <laughs> and a lot of people ask us sometimes, like, what it is, what is it that makes you want to run marathons? And I have to admit that probably 70% of the time when people ask me that question, I go, I don't know. <laughs> and especially at mile 20, I can tell you, I really don't know why I do this. And I'm sure Pastor Jared <laughs> can affirm that too. One of the things that I have come to realize that I really enjoy about running marathons or any race are the mile markers. For those of you who haven't done an organized race like a 5K, 10K, a half marathon, or a marathon, when you do it as an organized race, you have someone, the race organizers will hand you a course map that has a map of everywhere you're gonna go. And then along the course, every time you reach a new mile, there'll be a brightly lit pillar that says mile one, mile two, mile three, until eventually mile 26. There are not many things in life, <laughs> not many journeys you go on in life where there are mile markers along the path. And so one of the reasons that I love, I'm going to say it, that I do love doing marathons is because it's one of the few experiences I have in my life where I'm doing something really challenging, but I actually get to see every mile along the course that I know for sure I'm moving forward. And I know that I'm not alone as someone who really loves a good plan in my life. I remember when I was really sick when I was younger. I have epilepsy and I was really, really ill as a teenager. I remember that my mom gave me a beautiful frame of Jeremiah 29:11, which I just said to our kids earlier that God, for God knows the plans he has for you, plans for good and not for evil, plans for a future and a hope. And I remember when I was going through the uncertainty of illness, how much I clung to that and still cling to that. And many of you know as well that I work as a hospital chaplain. I've spent my entire career working as a chaplain in hospitals and hospice. And that search for a plan is something that I see, I would say, every day when I'm working with patients. And in fact, I've heard so many people say to me at some point, <laughs> I could make it through this period of trial. I would have no problem knowing, or I would have no problem getting through the uncertainty if God just gave me a map. <laughs> if God could just tell me the path forward on a piece of paper, or even if God told me the exact day that my life would end, it would be so much more tolerable. And I understand that. I have a lot of empathy for that, especially because I've heard it from so many different patients that I've worked with in hospitals and hospice. And I think it's a really universal experience that a lot of us have of trusting in God and trusting in the end of the story, but really wanting the mile markers along the way, just because they're a source of comfort. So the passages I brought today I think are scriptures that point to a plan and point to a mile marker. And were provided in the Gospel of Matthew to the earliest, earliest hearers of Matthew on purpose to try and give the earliest followers of Jesus a sense of that plan that God had in store. 
However, <laughs> like Jesus often does with me and I'm sure with all of you, the plan and the mile marker he offers, I'm sure, is not what the earliest disciples expected and maybe what we expected ourselves, but I think they're mile markers nonetheless. So with that, we're going to be talking about two parables in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bible handy, just turn to Matthew. I'll guide you to the right passage when we get there. Um, and before we go, before I read the passages themselves, I always think it's important to take a step back and talk about and explore the social and historical background of the text, because something that I hold so dear <laughs> to myself and to my own understanding of our scriptures is that God could have revealed himself in the person of Jesus at any time, <laughs> at any place in history, on any, any location of the world. Because God is all-powerful, he can do that. So that God chose to reveal himself in the person of Jesus Christ in ancient Israel with the culture that they had and the geography that they had and the social norms that they had, I think there's a reason for that. And I think that part of understanding the gospel is knowing that God revealed himself in that place in that time for a purpose to help us better understand his message. So with that in mind, I wanted to give a little bit of a historical background of the Gospel of Matthew that might help us understand what we're reading. One of the things that I know about the first hearers and readers of the Gospel of Matthew is that the people who first heard and read the Gospel of Matthew, the earliest Christians, they were a community in distress, right? They didn't look like us here sitting in the pews. They were facing persecution from the Roman Empire, and even more than that, they were facing persecution from who they perceived as fellow Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the earliest Christians were regarded as this wayward sect of Judaism that was not only socially marginalized, it was actually dangerous for them. So you can imagine the people who are first hearing this gospel, who are first reading this gospel, they're people who are living in a very tense time and are dealing with very tense choices and they are probably really wondering what the plan is. <laughs> They're probably very concerned, not just for their own beliefs, but also for their livelihood. So that urgency, I think, is something we see in the text and also something that I try and have a lot of empathy for as I read it and imagine how it must have been heard. And even more than that, the first parable that I'm gonna talk about today, the parable of the good soil, the passage immediately preceding it talks about a story that some of us are familiar with where it's the story where so many people gathered to hear Jesus teach that he had to get on a boat <laughs> and preach from the middle of the lake to the people on land because there were so many people coming to him asking for a plan, asking him for a teaching, asking him to help them understand where they were going, how to get there, and what's next. So let's look into the parable. It's Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 8. This is probably familiar to some of you, but it's, let me read it to you. It's the parable of the good soil. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was gathering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came up and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, and still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. 
So whoever has has ears to hear, hear, has ears, let them hear. So who else is familiar with this parable, right? Has anyone else heard this before? This is one of my favorite parables. I just called it the parable of the good soil. Hold on, remember that for a second. Um, Because Jesus is quite clear in this chapter that the, and in this parable, that the seed in this case is the word or the revelation of God made known through the Jesus's life and teaching. So he's clear about what the seed is. And like many of you, I have spent most of my life reading this parable focused on the soil. I called it the parable of the good soil. As a person of faith, I don't want to be like rocky ground, (laughs) right, where the seed falls and doesn't sprout. I don't want to be like the shallow patch or the thorny patch that lets the miracle of God's word wither. I want to be like good soil. Who else wants to be like good soil? Anyone else? Yeah. <laughs> and I want my I want the seed of God's word and God's light to plant in my life, not just so it can serve me, but also so it could be a source of light and nourishment for others. And I don't think there's anything wrong with reading the parable that way. In fact, I think there's it's a beautiful way to live our lives and to help have the scripture guide our life. But there was something I noticed about this parable when I went back and I read it through, and it's in verse 18. So after the parable in verse 18, Jesus says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. I called it the parable of the good soil. Jesus says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. So not the soil, (laughs) the sower. Jesus says that the one sowing the seed is the actual main character of the parable. So... I went back and read it again, (laughs) paying attention to what I learned about the sower. Here's one of the first things I noticed about the sower. When the sower scattered the seed, he didn't just scatter it on the ground where he knew it would sprout, right? When the sower scattered the seed, he didn't sprout it only where he thought it would take, take root. The sower scattered it everywhere. He scattered it on the rocky ground, he scattered it on the shallow ground, and he he scattered it on the good soil. And what I can imagine the earliest followers of Jesus might have thought was a little reckless, right? I would have I, I really relate more to the, more to the, the disciples than I think I should. <laughs> but I try and have a lot of humility about that too when I read about the disciples. So in this scripture, It shows us that the sower wasn't paying attention as much to whether or not the seed would for sure take root. He was scattering it everywhere, scattering his love everywhere. And I know the earliest disciples of Jesus, because we can see this in the scriptures, they didn't love how Jesus also brought his word and his light and his love to more than just the good soil places, right? And plot twist, they probably thought they were the good soil. They thought that Jesus was a little reckless, that he spent equal amounts of time with the tax collectors and the sinners as he did with them. But of course, in Jesus's mind, sometimes where the good soil is could surprise us. And I don't think this parable is meant to portray a reckless farmer. I don't think that's the point of what Jesus is trying to say. I think it is intended to teach the disciples something that as sowers of God's word, we are called to share God's message of love and acceptance and grace everywhere. Not just where people agree with us, not just where people live like us, not just where people where we judge the people to be good soil, 
not just in places where people look like us or live the same way that we do. God calls us to sow his seed and scatter the goodness of his love and his grace and his word everywhere. This was probably a very hard message for the earliest followers of Jesus to hear. Because again, remember, they were going through so much persecution themselves. So imagine when they were already facing such persecution. It would have been really hard, I imagine, to reckon with a map or a plan that had them not in opposition to the people who were different than them, but rather showering God's grace on the people who were different than them and even oppressing them. To bring God's soil, to bring God's seed to every soil and every terrain. What a call and what a plan. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, we hear another parable that I think may have shocked the earliest followers of Jesus because of its message of generosity. So let's flip ahead to Matthew 21, and it's verses 33 through 43. Now this one's a little dense. I'm going to read through it all the way, but I promise you we're going to go back, and I'm going to break it down to help make sense of some of it, because I had to read it through. I have a Master's in Divinity. I had to read it through probably five times <laughs> before I felt like really ready to write down my thoughts on it. So Matthew 21, verses 33 through 43. This is called the parable of the wicked tenants. <laughs> there was a householder who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to tenants and went into another country. When the season of fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servant and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. But again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, they will surely respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inherent inheritance. And they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? They, so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of heaven will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. Thanks for plugging along through that story. It's a longer story. So before I talk about the details of the parable, again, I want to take a step back and put it into context of the larger story. So this parable is found toward the end of the Gospel of Matthew. The other one was earlier in the Gospel. And the beginning of this chapter is the well-known chapter of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey with the crowds proclaiming Hosanna. That was perfect that you sang that song. <laughs> set it up exactly where we needed to go um, and straight from there in this chapter in this part of the story is when Jesus goes into the temple and starts flipping tables in frustration because of the money changers and the vendors and he says the famous line that my father's house should be a house of prayer not a den of thieves and then right after that he then begins curing people with diseases who come into the temple and he begins, Jesus begins teaching those who want to hear the word of God. Now, something I find so fascinating about this part of the gospel right before the parable is that it's at that point 
when Jesus starts healing and starts teaching. <laughs> that is the first time the text mentions the chief leaders and elder, elders of the temple noticing him and getting frustrated. Not when he was flipping tables. <laughs> Not when he was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. <laughs> it isn't until Jesus starts teaching and healing that the chief leaders of the temple go, excuse me, <laughs> who are you? What do you think you're doing? That, that to me is really powerful. So then in response, Jesus tells this parable that we heard when they do eventually confront him with the question, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you the authority to do them? Again, not about flipping tables, not about wandering into the temple, being angry about healing people. So let's return to the parable, and this is Jesus' answer to their question. What gives you the authority? So the images of this parable would be super familiar to the original hearers and readers of the gospel um, because the leasing of land to tenant farmers was a really common practice, and the social agreement was always that the tenant farmers were liable to release a portion of the fruits to the owner of the land, um, and if they failed to do this, the lease would be terminated. So this is a familiar trope to the earliest hearers of the gospel. I thought it was interesting, too, that it takes at least five years for brand new vines to produce mature grapes. So this was a long, drawn-out process that the tenants were in, invested in. But the breakdown of this relationship begins early in the, in the parable. We saw that the first, land, the first landowner sends out his servants to collect the produce, and the tenants beat him violently. Then the landowner tries again with the same outcome, and finally he sends his th son, thinking surely this will be the moment they treat him with honor but the viciousness only increases. Um, and part of that is because the tenants realize that if there's no more air, then the, the land will be released to them. I want to read again, though, what the Pharisees answer that question Jesus poses, or Jesus poses, of what, what do you think they, that should be done to the tenants? Jesus asks the Pharisees, what do you think should be done to the tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. So this is what justice should look like to the Pharisees and the chief leaders. Justice is eye for an eye. They should suffer a woeful death. But what does Jesus say? Going back to the scripture, Jesus says, have you never read in the scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. So therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruits of the kingdom. A little Hebrew nerdery here, because <laughs> I, love, I love reading texts in the original Hebrew. The first thing Jesus does is he quotes a line from Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become their cornerstone. Something interesting in Hebrew is that the word for sun and the word for stone are very similar to each other. The word for sun is ben, the word for stone is eben. So there's a little bit of wordplay happening there. And scholars, some scholars think that that's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees got so mad. It's because they realized Jesus was saying, I am the sun, I am the cornerstone. And that made them really infuriated <laughs> because it was clear what he was saying. And the second thing we notice is that Jesus does not mirror that eye for an eye theology that the, the temple leaders prescribed to. Instead, he says the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God will belong to the nation producing the fruits of it. 
which made me ask the question, what exactly are the fruits of the kingdom that God desires? Something I noticed myself assuming when I read this parable, just because of how many times I've gone through the scriptures, is I noticed myself automatically lumping this in to some of the other parables we hear about good fruit and withered fruit and fruit of the vine that, that God wants us to produce. And I was thinking more about the fruit. But did you notice the parable never actually says anything about the quality of the fruit that was produced? This parable has everything to say about how it was shared. So in this story, when other people tried to participate in the work of the vineyard by sharing in the fruit, the tenants turned them away brutally. And for this reason, the kingdom of heaven was taken away from them. Not because of the quality of the fruit, but because of how they refused to share it. So I want to close today by sharing one of my other favorite verses that illustrates, again, for me, how surprising and how beautiful and how not the plan I expected <laughs> it can be where and when God chooses to share his grace and God chooses to speak. So our last scripture, we're getting out of Matthew now. I apologize. I said we're in Matthew the whole time. We're actually going to Luke. So if you turn to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. I'll go ahead and read it to you. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Aturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, no relation, I'm pretty sure, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This may seem like a pretty unexciting <laughs> scripture, just going through some big names of big important people at the time. But the first thing I ask myself when I read this passage is, where does God speak? Where do I think God speaks? It's easy to imagine God speaking from glorious places like mountaintops or right on the beach in front of the Pacific Ocean or in beautiful cathedrals that we've built. It's harder to imagine God speaking in the wilderness, right, for some people, in a threatening wilderness. But what this passage does that I think is so powerful is starting from in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. This passage lays out the absolute most powerful people in the time that the gospel was written, starting with the Roman emperor, right? No one more powerful in the world at that time. Then it goes Pontius Pilate, no one more powerful in that region. Then it goes Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, no one more, po more powerful in that, that little region of the region of Judea. And then keeps going down the list to the high priests, so no one more powerful than those religious leaders at the time. But where does the word of God go? The word of God goes to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, not those incredibly powerful people, not those people who by the world standards are the ones where you would assume the word of God would go to. The word of God goes to John. And even more than that, in Greek, when it says the word of God came, in Greek, the word that got translated as came here is actually in Greek the word surrounded. So another way you can read it is that the word of God surrounded John in the wilderness. 
I think that's a really powerful image <laughs> and a really powerful reminder as we think about people being people who are sowers in this world, as we think about being people who are called to share God's grace and God's goodness and God's word. We might be surprised where God calls us, but God is so clear that his plan is for everyone everywhere to know the grace that he's shown us. So God's mile markers are not what we expect. And he calls us into places with radical generosity and kindness that might even surprise us or intimidate us, but I hope what you can take comfort in today, each one of us, is that if God calls us into the wilderness, he won't just speak to us there, he will surround us there. So let me pray for us. Gracious and loving Father, we thank you for your word and how you've revealed it to us so that we may know you better. And God, I trust and believe now that you will take what we've seen in your scriptures, that you've given to us with so much grace to, know, to have authority over, to understand what you are saying to us. God, I pray that your spirit would guide us to know you better. But more than anything, Lord, I pray that you will take what we see, take what you've taught us, and that you will knit it together in such a way that we will be bearers of your light in this world. I pray that everyone we meet will leave feeling like they know you better because of what was said, because of what they saw, and because of the grace they experience. So I thank you, Lord, for these people who you knit together for your purpose and your good. And Lord, we pray it all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at champschurch.com.